Hello, welcome to Books Baby, reading the rainbow and the occasional straight white man. Content warning, this episode of Books Baby contains discussion of sexual abuse, sexual trauma, gendered violence and horror. And content warning, we'll be discussing the plots of the stories in this collection. Hello, welcome to Books Baby, the podcast where we're reading the rainbow and the occasional straight white man. My name's Ian and I'm joined by Allo, Jamie and Bev. And this month is June, so it's Pride Month and we are celebrating queer writers by reading a book by the queer American writer Carmen Maria Machado. First off, though, I'm going to say hello to everyone and ask them what their favorite queer book is. Hello, let's start with you. So I just finished reading um, Just by Looking at Kim by Ryan O'Connell, which is the creator of the Netflix series Special and the reboot of Queer as Folk. Um, and he's in both uh, shows. And it was just a very delightful book. It's funny, but it's very deep. It reads very easily. You can see that it's a person that normally doesn't write books, but TV, which I really like that because they're short chapters. And it's the story about this disabled gate, uh, like the author, because the author has cerebral pasty. And so the main character has the same one. And it's a coming of age, but in a very fun way, he starts engaging with sex workers, alcohol. So it, it a lot of things are going on, but it's done very well, very funny. And I just loved it very much. How about you, Jamie? Well, as per usual, my favorite is the last one that I read because <laughs> God forbid I remember anything beyond that. <laughs> my current favorite is Notes of a Crocodile um, by... I can't pronounce the name, so I'm not going to try and offend anyone. By a Taiwanese author, and it's a Taiwanese lesbian novel. It's very sad, so like, don't go into it thinking you're going to have like a great time. The writing and translation is wonderful, but frankly, it's such a depressing book, and the main character clearly suffers from depression but refuses to admit it. And she basically narrates the different experiences she's had with her relationships. So she's had mainly relationships with women, um, but like, there's a man or two that pop in that sort of force themselves into her life and a relationship of convenience of sorts not for her but rather for the man she was with and she basically lets all these relationships pass her by and she comments on them because she feels undeserving because of her depression and feels like she's going to ruin everything honestly it was like a very deep book the writing was fantastic and it I think it took me like a week to read and it's not a very long book but it was nice it like it's not like anything I've seen recently especially with sapphic fiction so yeah that sounds great I've not read much Taiwanese fiction so I have to add that to my list Bev over to you I think my favorite one will be Memorial by Brian Washington I read this during one of the lockdowns and it stayed with me so it's set both in America and in Japan and it basically chronicles a failing um, relationship between two gay men who are both minor minorities which I thought was interesting because it really goes into what that kind of relationship looked like and what blockers there are when you try to sort of bridge that cultural gap I think a lot of the stories that I read are normally a minority with a white person which is another different dynamic so I was happy that was explored and I was happy that we get to go along to Japan with the character to explore his relationship with his mother and the food writing in it is excellent which is another reason why I've always liked this sort of book it's like a nothing book but 
the description is very, very good and makes me feel warm, even though it's a sad story. I have to agree with you, Bev. I do love a, a book with good food descriptions. And I really liked the scenes in Memorial where at Mitsuko, the mother is, the Japanese mother is cooking with the, is he African-American? It's a few years since I, I read it. Yeah, he is. And um, I love this, this one scene in she Great Example. Yeah. And he, she's so impressed that he knows where to get Nato beans. <laughs> So I had trouble choosing my favourite, but I'll go with one that I read a couple of years ago, which like Jamie's book is a little bit on the sad aside. It's the French novel Lie With Me by Philippe Besson, which was translated by Molly Ringwald. And it's based on his own life. It tells a story of him growing up in rural France and his fatuation with a, a school friend and they have to keep their relationship secret. So it's ultimately doomed, of course. And then 20 years later, the narrator, who's now a famous novelist, has a chance encounter with the son of the man that he'd been, he'd never stopped loving and sort of discovers that actually this man had never forgotten him too. So it's one of the few books that's actually brought me to tears and in a nice way, like it's quite, it's sad, but it's also very, very sweet. All right, so moving along to our main topic now, which is her Body and Other Parties, a story collection by Carmen Maria Machado, which was published in 2017. Machado is best known for this collection and for her memoir in The Dream House, which was published in 2019. Her stories have been published everywhere from The New Yorker to Granta magazine. She's received grants from many distinguished workshops and foundations, including a Guggenheim Fellowship. And she's won awards, including the Shirley Jackson Award, the Bard Award and the Lambda Literary Award for both lesbian fiction and nonfiction. Her memoir in the Dream House is part memoir, partly scholarly thesis, part experiment with form, yet all those things somehow work together to, co to form a cohesive, incredible whole. Machado writes of her abusive relationship with the girl from the Dream House through a series of essays Machado includes research and analysis into the history of queer abuse, its silence in the cultural narrative, and how Machado must create her own language and form for the story to exist. It's become a seminal work in the queer canon, and Bev and I couldn't stop singing its praises when we read it last year, which brought us to Her Body and Other Parties, Machado's debut collection of stories. It also plays with various styles, mostly horror and science fiction, to expose the truths of our modern lives. Machado writes stories of women teetering on the edge of sanity, women fading into nothingness, a woman haunted by the fat she lost after having gastric bypass surgery. And there's a novella length story which takes the characters from Law and Order SVU and turns their investigations into 12 seasons of a ghoulish unceasing hell realm. I'm sure we're going to have lots of opinions, so let's jump into it. My first question for everyone is, what was your most favourite and your least favourite of these stories? Let's start with Jamie. Was it never expect anyone to come to me first. But <laughs> I'm just trying to mix it up a bit. <laughs> My favourite story was the first one, which I know is so like traditional of me. Um, it was the husband's stitch. So I really liked um, the story and I thought it was going to really set up for the whole collection about how good it was. Um, but we'll get to that later. Um, and I really liked how like the green ribbon, like I feel like that has like come up a couple of times in sort of like, I don't know if it was like fairy tales or like folklore and things like that about like uh, women who like bind their neck um, or like ribbons and like that sort of comparison I've seen come up a few times. But I really like how she does it because it talks about the body autonomy of women and particularly the woman in question in terms of 
that ribbon in particular because she never fully goes into like what it does when the men in her life ask and she just keeps being sort of vague about it like oh you can't touch it you can't touch it and her husband and son both try to undo the ribbon at some point and like pull on it and she stops them and um, they never really tried again so I thought that was interesting but then in the end of the story she sort of regains her own power by choosing when to undo it and we find out that it's because it kills her I thought it was just like an interesting commentary on like women's bodies and the choice autonomy because like the start of the story goes through like her and her husband getting together and then having their son and the control that he has over her life like I can't remember because I did read it like a month and a half ago I think but I don't remember him being like particularly abusive towards her I think he was a bit like like disengaged with her and their relationship but I don't remember him being particularly abusive but he still sort of tries to push her bodily boundaries yeah what did everyone else sort of think about that story I think yeah you kind of nailed it that uh, for me it was that she gave herself to him sexually completely you know as a young girl she was just happy to do anything that he wanted to do but then as time went on he you know the only thing was he wasn't allowed to touch that ribbon and that was the only thing that she wanted to keep for herself but then he wanted it too and then her son started to want it as well so it's so powerful I yeah I really enjoyed that story too it was a commentary on how we always want what we can't have and then we what we can have distract us from all the other things that we have and that are good and this woman who was very openly sexual and was willing to please her husband and her only condition was to not touch that ribbon and then that's the only thing that he was fixated on with her i thought that was a, an interesting commentary and also it was very um I thought the commentary became deeper because it was the husband who couldn't touch that ribbon and how he tries, like it's how straight men always want to have it their way. Maybe that there's a critique around gender dynamics as well in in, in that story. I'm just going to jump in and, and say, I don't know that it's always just straight men that are like that. I've known gay men like that as well. Well, true. And it might be, but I think it is mostly men who always want yeah. to have it their way and women by society like women learn to just surrender to what men want or have to fight men desires or power more than men probably not just men just blame the patriarchy it's systemic i think the biggest thing that i've um heard um the analogy which i think relates and i don't think this is like a men men thing but the patriarchy conditions like most people who are masculine to see you know, dating as a thing that you win, like prizes to be won and to, you know, own completely, whereas uh, women are sort of socialised in relationships that's a never-ending project. You know, you build and build and build and that sort of plays out, I think, in a lot of more clearly in a hetero relationship, I'm sure, um, and as Machado, 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 sorry, illustrates in the dream house something that kind of like seeps in into lesbian relationships as well but I think for me that one was also about the, the medical aspect I've heard of the husband's bit stitch before like way I think they some places still do it but like you know extra stitch outside like the vulva so that it's still tight after you've had children and I've heard people do it against the world woman and for me that was like also that sort of like medical horror bit of like women not being listened to or women's bodies everywhere you know in every sort of situation being sort of systemically 
oppressed really and kind of sad how I think it's a toxic toxic masculinity thing that sort of translates from father to son where the son follows in the steps of the father where he also sees that he's can't I guess own all of his mother and starts to distance himself from him I thought that was like really sad and also I guess a really beautiful way of seeing how that sort of family dynamic can bring a child up like that. So back to you, Jamie, you have to answer the other part of the question now, which was what was your least favourite story? And from our discussions beforehand, I suspect we're all in agreement on this, so I'll let you go first about the one you didn't like. Oh, thanks so much. That's so kind. Um, my least favourite was the SVU one, which we will delve into later. But, yeah, it, I don't know how many uh, pages let's exactly. Let's delve into it now. Let's get it okay. over and done with. Okay. I hated it. I hated it. Me too. <laughs> too Me three. I, I don't necessarily. <laughs> she says quietly in the back. <laughs> I don't necessarily mind that she like wanted to retell episodes of SVU, um, as you were explaining earlier, with like a different lens on it. I appreciate the experimental nature and the creativity that goes into that. I just don't think it needed to be like 60 or something pages worth of like nearly the entire show. Like, I think if she did like 10 pages as like a little taster, chose some favorite episodes or something um that would have been great but yeah for me it went on way too long I ended up skipping half I think of the chapter it was it just lost me completely in the the whole collection just really soured the collection for me yeah me too I I've had a cold this week I don't know if you can tell from my lovely deep mellifluous tones Um, but I had I was like reading it while I had a fever and I just I felt descended into some hell realm where there were ghosts with a murdered children with bells for eyes haunting me and and the floor was like humming and I just I didn't enjoy it and like you said Jamie it just kept going and going and I was really tempted not to finish it but I thought you know I'm a bit of a completist I felt like I had to finish it for the podcast so all I'll say is that it's amazing that I still enjoyed the book because the rest of the stories were so good but I just didn't I didn't gel with that law and order one at all I didn't like it either Uh, I didn't finish either but I think that's the beauty of uh, short story collections that if you get a bad one you can skip it and you don't lose anything the next one is a fresh start so yeah my notes in for that um, <laughs> for that short story is literally I just wrote a law and order summary really why couldn't be desperate housewife summary so that's all I'm gonna say or Grey's Anatomy really like absolutely yes. a bit of eye candy would have been nice literally any other show and it would have been fine doctor who just anything oh my god agenda yeah. flipped queer doctor who oh, yes. i want to read that i want to write it Bev, so you said that you didn't mind it so do you want to come to this defense yeah i think it's look like i i ran in knowing that she was an experimental writer i'm not familiar with svu but i know that it goes on it's a show that goes on forever so i get why it's so long um i i also thought it was a bit too long it covered a lot of ground in between and some stuff i was like oh, i don't think i really need to do this because the core of the story is really only a couple of elements which is you know the dead are haunting you you got to solve that murder and there is an alternate universe in which there is another pair of people cast um but for me i think it, it sort of is a criticism of 
the show SVU in and of itself, it kind of piles on and on all these different murders and sexual assault of the people. And I think it makes a good point of like, what is the point of having a show that goes on and on about this and, you know, kind of like packages up sexual assault, rape and murder for our consumption? Is there a point? And especially it coming from a police detective sort of lens and we know everything that's kind of like happened so far with the police sort of department in the last couple of years. I thought I made like a good point about that. And I quite enjoyed like the monster rumbling underneath New York City with the sort of badum sort of sound effect padam. of the show. Padam, yeah. We had to drop in that. It, it did went padam, padam. Um, so if you put, maybe if you played Kylie Minogue 50 times as you read the story, you would have found it more palatable. I think I did play Kylie Minogue 50 times oh. as I read the story. <laughs> or if, if she had written an essay 50 pages long about Kylie Minogue, we would have oh. finished. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not that kind of collection though, anyway. All right, I'm going to throw it over to Allo to tell us his favourite story. I really enjoyed the one called The Inventory. I, I enjoyed most of them, like the all of the other ones. I was torn between that one and Eight Bites. Uh, but The Inventory particularly, I felt like it was a premonition of what happened with COVID and having to be isolated and all the restrictions. I connected through that story also because of the way she remembers snippets of her life with her sex with the sexual partners that she had how she described those things particularly that story with the virus and I was just impressed of how something that was written two years before the pandemic or a few years because I think that this was released in 2019 or 2017 2017 yeah like basically described what we went through three years later so I've got to say, I did start reading that and think, wait, when was this written? But um, the effects of their pandemic were much, much worse. And then she ends up living on an island sort of all yes. by herself. And yeah, that was quite a poignant story. I quite liked it as well. It wasn't my favourite, but um, yeah, definitely one of the better ones in the collection. I think that was my second favourite. It's like, the, you know, the 90s rom-com trope of like calling all your ex-boyfriends to figure out what went wrong in your life and relationship. I, what was that? I think Catherine Hegel or someone did a movie on that. And then there was another British one called Scrotum Recall, where again, the guy had to call all his exes because he had chlamydia and he had to tell all of his exes. So I like the, um, like call, call all your exes uh, or list all your past relationships, but set it in like a pandemic setting. And I was like, that was kind of clever and a twist to it. And quite, yeah, very sad at the end, I thought. Like what a 30th birthday to have staring into the horizon waiting for the virus to come yeah I agree with pretty much what everyone said like I actually didn't mind that story I found it quite sort of sad and like a reflective sort of story especially after like you know we all sort of experienced similar things albeit we didn't go running for an island but we experienced like similar emotions to that in 2020 so it was relatable in some aspects but yeah it was it was an interesting one and Bev what was your favorite story My favourite story is probably Real Women Have Bodies. That was really haunting for me. So it's set, I think, in like the 2008 recession era in like a suburban mall and like a motel as well. I think all the scene setting there was pitch perfect and the author or the protagonist of this novel works at like a clothing store that sells prom dresses, I think, from what I was understanding. And basically it's about women kind of just fading into nothing for no reason. And 
there is this really strong imagery and I like keep thinking about it of all these women gathered in this seamstress house and they've gathered there to be sold into these dresses, prom dresses that are then kind of transported to the mall and then sold to teenage girls. And um, the funny thing is the, the dresses with the women sewn into them sell the best. And the idea of that is just really powerful for me because there is this trope, I think, of women folding themselves into tinier and tinier pieces. It's immediately sort of like, kind of it's preceded by the um, SVU sort of story, which is about women disappearing. And then after that, it's Eight Bites, which is about um, people dieting culture, people losing weight, stapling their stomachs. And I thought this one in particular about women fading and we, and you know, women fading is like such a thing that happens in relationships, in families and all of that. Um, yeah, it's just a very, beautiful way to have that and there is like a queer love story that comes into it and it's really heartbreaking when her like girlfriend starts fading away as well um yeah so that one really that one really stood out for me both in writing I thought everything was kind of like pitch perfect in terms of a balance of experimental and it's kind of like a ghost story but not in a traditional way yeah it was such a powerful story and like the love story was beautiful and then the way that her lover sort of faded away was just it was really tragic and the other thing that I got from that story was again she's talking about men wanting to own women's bodies and um I just want to read a little bit out the there's a point where they're talking about on the on the tv news the the hosts are sort of having arguments as as the woman in between them shimmers and and wavers under the studio lights and they're talking about how we can't trust the faded women women who can't be touched but can stand on the earth which means they must be lying about something. They must be deceiving us somehow. I just, I found that. Uh, and they so, really, yeah, I like that. And I think in that same passage, I can't find it now, but um, she, they say something along those lines of like, I don't trust something that is both bleeding and corporal, but still alive. And that's like an old thing you referenced in women having periods. I'm like, y'all, because <laughs> they're not really dead. They're not dead in this story. They just fade and people don't bother kind of looking for them again. And then, um, I like the little part about it where people are going online to figure out how to stop fading so quickly, which is exactly the sort of response that I would do if I found that I was fading. Yeah, yeah it's very real. So my favourite story was, <clears throat> and I forgot its name, but it's the one where the writer with the initials CM, um, who could The resident? Be? Yeah, the resident. Yeah, the resident. Uh, she goes to a what do I want to call it, a writing commune, um, a residency. Retreat, yeah. <laughs> retreat. They call themselves colonists and she finds that a bit disturbing. Um, but she's there in the middle of nowhere with all of these strange artists. Um, and she has all these recollections of when she was a child as a girl guide and some traumatic things that happened to her when she first realised that she was gay and kissed another girl and um, the other girl kind of betrayed her and yeah it was all very traumatic um but I just loved that it was it was a a take on the trope of the mad woman in the attic as this writer becomes sort of more engrossed in her own art and the others see her as becoming mad and eventually she sort of I guess you know realizes that it's okay for her to be mad as long as she can be mad in the way that is best for her 
Yeah, I, I just really thought the writing in that story was amazing. I liked the two time streams, the talking about her as a girl and in the present moment. I liked the setting. I liked the, the frisson with the other characters. And I think that's the one that'll stay with me the most. I particularly like this one because I always feel like artist retreats are a great setting for things to go really wrong or completely crazy. And, you know, I was researching that place that she went because I was looking at her Wikipedia uh, entry and it said all the different um, grants and things that she'd got. And, and so the, this is based on a real place, obviously. And the list of people that have been there to do writing retreats or, you know, artist retreats is like there's so many famous people that have lived there. And I just kind of like that connection to, to artistry. And I guess I like the meta sort of value of it, that it, it feels real, but it also is just this intriguing story. That one wasn't one of my favourites, but I, you know how she never, she writes letters to her wife and then she never gets any back? I was, I, yeah, I didn't know. Did you think at the end was the twist that actually she was mad and then she had actually gone, I don't know, like she had actually gone to like a mental health hospital or like, a, like it wasn't a writing retreat. That was one of the things that I was thinking about because I think she like drives back and her wife, his wife, her wife doesn't really recognise her at the I, end. I thought so too, but then I thought like, oh, maybe I'm not understanding it correctly, but glad to see that someone <laughs> else thought she thought died. Oh, yeah. And she has that accident, she kills the rabbit at the beginning oh, and then, yeah. but there's only half a rabbit there and then half a rabbit turns up later on her doorstep right yeah that was like she's a ghost <laughs> maybe and yeah because she keeps looking in the water and not seeing her reflection as well oh yeah i mean there's a lot of readings for that story i also sort of thought that she might have been either dead or at like a mental health hospital no reflection thing i definitely think she was dead Mm. um and that she was in some sort of like hellscape which is pretty common in the short story collection actually yeah there's a lot of hellscapes <laughs> <laughs> so we've all talked about our least favorite and our favorite stories and and we acknowledge that they're all experimental fiction so i just wanted to briefly talk about whether we think experimental fiction is accessible to the reader or if it's inaccessible what do you think Allo? i think it depends on the mood of the reader rather than the writer but i i think that's what i like about reading short story collections particularly from well-established authors because i feel like in this kind of work they allow themselves to explore new narratives or new styles that they would not normally do in their bigger work of writing this one i i really enjoy that i i've never read machado before but i definitely want to read in the dream house from her Thinking more broadly, I I I found like Murakami is more experimental in his short story collections. It was a bit the same with Garcia Marquez. So I I really enjoyed short story collections, and it, they're really good for me when I have like a reader's blocker. Get back into my reading. I think Ella makes a good point. Like, and I don't think it's necessarily on the um, author to make a, especially with a short story collection, like accessible per se, because more often than not, they are experimental. So it's more a collection of what the author is experimenting with for their own sake rather than for their reader's sake. So I don't think it necessarily has to be accessible, but there's definitely certain audiences for like short story collections and specific authors' short story collections. Yeah, I grew up with like Neil Gaiman and fantasy. So experimental, like I love experimental fiction and this reminded me a little bit of Neil Gaiman's like short stories. Um, and if you don't know Neil Gaiman, he's like super famous, 
fantasy writer who wrote The Sandman, Coraline, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So for me, it's in the same vein of those books. And I think in general, it's the same with fantasy. It's like genre fiction. Like if you like it, you like it. But I can see why there is an entry barrier to that sort of thing. And I think short stories are a good way to go with it. And I think. Kill Your Darlings had a really good piece on this actually about like weird fiction and how in Australian landscape there wasn't like a lot of weird fiction but we're seeing more and more of it coming from other countries like Bora Chung's Cursed but Bunny which was like also also kind of like this kind of weird about women sexuality bunnies was really excellent and I really enjoyed it I think it gives you artistic license to think about things and experiment things that like a just literary fiction or just straight contemporary fiction won't allow you to do. So I really enjoyed that form. But I know you've read some experimental fiction recently as well, Ian, like The Shards. So how do you feel about the whole thing? The Shards was experimental in a very different way. This did remind me more of Bora Chung, like you said, or, or even Han Kang or Mieko Kawakami. Um, although less so, but I didn't find it inaccessible except for the Law and Order one, as we've talked about. Um, I found all the stories really quite accessible to me, but maybe that says something about my reading being quite eclectic, like I'm happy to read science fiction. Um, I used to read heaps of science fiction when I was a kid, and um, I don't mind a bit of horror every now and again, but I think if you're the sort of person who, who wants a very literal story, told quite simply, um, then, then you wouldn't really gel with this kind of book. It does leave lots of questions at the end of each story, but I think that's what she's trying to do is to make you think about things and to get you to reflect on the world through these stories, which are very otherworldly. So I guess there's just, there's a market for it. There's a niche for it, as you said. So moving along to another theme, which threads through the whole collection, uh, Machado writes about many women who've experienced trauma, particularly sexual trauma, but she also writes about women enjoying sex in their bodies, particularly between queer women. How did you react to the sexual nature of the stories? I really enjoy how matter of fact some of it was, like in um, Dust and Stitch, it was very kind of straight, um, straightly, straightly told, like not in a sexual orientation kind of way, but just in a form sort of way. It was a straight way. story though. It was a straight story, yes. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of it, I enjoyed the, um, there's a lot of queer sex in it and in a way that's not, it's not exploitive, which I feel sometimes you do get in TV shows and on screen and even sometimes in the fiction. Like I've read some queer romance stories, like straight up, you know, romance genre stories. And I think the way that sex has been told on here is like a lot more fuller. It's very, it's also very sensual and she doesn't shy away from describing women's body parts or, you know, the sexual parts of their bodies and how it looks like through a woman's gaze and the queer gaze. And I thought, that for me was one of the highlights of the entire book and in the many different types of relation that you get. So, you know, they're in um, the inventory where she's going through her sexual partners, you see both like men and women and everyone in between. And then you go deeper into um, the fading women's story where you, you know, you have like a long lasting crush and the sadness of like a you know, relationship fading away and the desperation around that. So I thought I found all of that really lovely. And even, you know, everything around how she describes her environment sometimes can be quite sexual as well, quite sensual and quite earthly, which I really enjoyed. Like this story 
which is actually about domestic violence in a relationship, but the way that she kind of decorates around it with the language about finding stuff in the freezer. So this little bit here where she opens a cupboard and it's cluttered with extra virgin olive oil, half a dozen bottles, some full of forests of rosemary and fat bulbs of pilled garlic, sesame oil whose glass bottle never seems to lose the greasy sheen on its outside. Just the way that she describes that, I think adds a lot to the atmosphere and when, you know, when they eventually have sex or whatever, it builds up to it. And I really enjoyed how she's kind of woven all of that through her stories. I think that's a good point that you make about sexualized nature of her writing. And I think especially like, I mean, no matter what you read, like the writing is important, but specifically in this short story collection, the stylistic nature in which she chooses to write and what she focuses on is probably the most important part over like the content of the stories, in my opinion, because that is what sort of gives the the vibe of the collection about like violence and even like, as Bev was just saying, like the, the sexualized nature of food, even um, there's like that running thread throughout of like sexualizing nearly every aspect of each story, um, which I think is, yeah, important. Maybe sexualizing is not the right word. It's sensual. Like, it is <laughs> It is engaging with all of your senses, which I think about when, like, if you think about good sex is what I think about, like, pleasure and what how that kind of engages all of it and you're in the moment. I like how it's, I mean, I think it's the opposite of sexualized. Like you said, Bev, um, lesbian relationships when viewed through the prism of the straight man can so often be exploitative and to me this feels very that she's taking control of her sexuality and her body and I mean I don't know a lot about female bodies or female sex being a gay man but it felt very authentic to me and and very I guess vibrant and and she celebrates it and what I guess is really interesting is the way that these the stories are not about sex, but the the sex is just a, a part of life that's just there, present, whether you're fading away or going insane or, you know, in a hellscape, you're still having sex because you're a living, breathing human being. Yeah, and it made the stories come alive, I think. Like, it's like another, you know, another sense of the body, like a sixth sense, really. And I think it, it really fizzles and crackles and brings the whole collection together. Yeah, it's quite hard to to create a character in a short story who fizzles and crackles, like you say, from the page. But these women all have sexuality and that really helps to bring them to life. That brings us to our final question, which is a simple one. Do these stories work together as a collection? I think they do. They are cohesive. They have similar themes exploring the female body and female sexuality and female experiences in in the world yeah for me they they work cohesively i think to some degree i can agree with that now after like discussing it although my original position was that they didn't really work but i think with the caveat that most of these stories are things i would have loved to read red loaf like a full novel about rather than just like a short story because um they all sort of end quite abruptly almost to me and like she can she sort of just cuts off in what could have been like the middle of a story like but she had ended it so I think for me as a short story collection they don't work because there's just so much more she could have done whereas other short story collections I feel like more often than not the stories work as just a short glimpse rather than wanting more but I think that's more on me than the writer honestly I'm gonna disagree with you which I'm sure is fine just to say that for me I think sometimes the stories if they had been extended into a full-length novel I might have just got a bit sick of them like I did with the law and order one like sometimes 
you can be experimental in a short space and it's okay because you're only committing yourself to sort of 30 or 40 pages but to commit yourself to a big experimental novel is quite another thing altogether no i agree with probably more with Halloween Ian than jamie i think like it was a very cohesive collection i like the placement of the stories i think they're eight stories in total and i thought they worked quite well as sets and yeah like as you said the lord and order one dragged on as it is i just don't think it could have been any longer the one that she i think did expand on mothers which was about the abusive relationship i think she did it you know beautifully in in the dream house so she picked the story that resonated the most with her and expanded it out afterwards but as a short story collection i think the more that i think about this one the more that i liked it because a lot of the imagery stayed with me and i think you know we could take out the resident or the feeding woman one and just discuss it as a whole like a whole episode really but what it means like all the themes the symbols there's so much packed into it so for me it was you know as a debut novel just incredible and i i get why so many famous people have loved this because yeah this is bloody brilliant um yeah. i agree with you bev like i think it's a really successful collection it's amazing as a debut collection I think any short story collection is a bit patchy. You're going to have some that you connect with more than others. And I know lots of people who don't read short story collections for that because um, they find it hard to keep uh, starting a new story every 40 pages and trying to engage with the narrator or the, the world that the, the author's creating. Um, but this is very cohesive. I'd definitely recommend this to our listeners. Going on to our favourite part of the podcast. What's everyone reading at the moment? Put your hand up if you want to go first. Jamie! Oh, I have so much to say. I'm reading the new Isabella Allende book, which I happen to get sent as an arc, so like, bless up. Um, it's fantastic. So if you're not familiar, the title is The Wind Knows My Name. Um, and at the time of recording, this is her most recent book in 2023. Um, it follows a few concurrent storylines. I think so far there's about four or five different perspectives, which is interesting. Um, I don't think I've seen someone do so many in recent times, but it works well. All the characters are connected through their experiences of being torn apart by war and um, issues with crossing borders. So she touches on at the very start, it's like elements of um, the Holocaust. And then she time jumps and goes to the Mexican-US border crossings um, of like 2018, 2019 when it started to heat up. And then she touches into the pandemic and things like that. But I think it's a really interesting one. And as per usual, I'm excited to read the rest of her, the backlog of books that she has. Um, I'm just going to jump in. I'm going to make a correction because I'm going to say Agende, which is how we would pronounce Agende. the name Agende. But I, I just did it now because I know... All our listeners will know who Allende is, but not Agenda is, unless they speak Spanish. But no, I love that. Keep us, keep us, <laughs> keep us correct in pronunciation. And thank you for teaching us how to say Machado. And now that I mean, I'm just gonna Hello, tell. Since you've got your mic on, yes. Yeah. So I'm reading Love Me Tender. I just started it yesterday, and it is it's a French author called Constance Depuy, and it's about this woman who separates from her husband and then starts dating women and when she asks 
for a divorce because she wants to pursue that part of her life more full on. The husband decides to make some accusations that I'm not going to say which kind of accusation just to separate her from her eight-year-old son. So I'm literally 40 pages in and I think it's going to be probably my favorite read of the year oh, but it's really good and it's quite short so I, I think you will really like it Ian because it's like 150 pages long are you trying to say I have a short attention span no but you I remember <laughs> last year you liked small things like like this and oh, um, I do yeah, like a you short, like a short but deep right. and powerful novel so awesome I'm putting that on my list uh Bev what are you currently reading I just finished Rose Water by Liv little it's a debut author by a black london woman that uh bernadine everisto said was wonderfully fresh zesty and sexy it was okay like full review to come on my instagram but yeah that's what i read recently nice well i just recently started a book that's become highly recommended to me from a few friends it's called the new life by tom crew it's set during uh the victorian era in England and it's about two men who are married to women but are gay and uh, they're both well one of them's trapped in a marriage the other one enters it to try and create a better version of the world and they're both writers and they come together to write a document outlining how this new world could look uh, but it throws them into danger so I'm only like 50 pages in, but I'm really enjoying it so far. And so that's it for this month. Thanks for joining us here at Books Baby Pod. Next month is July and it's Black Month and it's NADOC week. And we're going to be celebrating Indigenous Australians by reading a First Nations author. So the book that we've chosen for this is Gary Lonesborough's book, The Boy from the Mish, and we look forward to discussing that with you next month. Happy reading, everybody. Hope to see you again soon. The book's baby theme music was written by Paul Smith and performed by Paul Smith and Ian Sykes. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We pay our respects to Indigenous elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land.